Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Carlos Lozada is a columnist for The New York Times, and before that, the longtime nonfiction book critic for The Washington Post. In 2019, Lozada won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism for a series of pieces that judges described as trenchant and searching reviews and essays that joined warm emotion and careful analysis in examining a broad range of books addressing government and the American experience. Well, he's now collected nearly a decade of such reviews in what he calls The Washington Book, How to Read Politics and Politicians, which was released this week. If the art of politics can be to subtract meaning from language, to produce more and more words that say less and less, he writes, then it is my purpose as a journalist to try to find that meaning and put it back. He reads a lot of books by politicians. As he likes to say, he reads all those books so that you don't have to. If people want to read my columns and reviews and books in lieu of reading all the others, I have no <laughs> I, have, I have no concerns. But he's found a way to use those books to say something interesting about those same politicians. What is real? What is performance? With politicians, I think it's uh, a sort of an instinctive uh, reaction to assume that everything at all times is a performance. So... What is Carlos's close reading of the likes of Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, and many others reveal about our politics in 2024? It turns out quite a lot. I sat down with Carlos in Politico's offices this week to find out. Oh, and stay tuned until the end of the show where we're going to try something new this week. And Carlos takes a question from one of those same politicians he's always trying to decode. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Let's talk a little bit about being a book critic in Washington, at the Washington Post, writing a lot about the books of people um, you might be rubbing shoulders with uh, uh, here and there. What are the considerations when you're in that business? How did you and how do you see the role of book critic? Just thinking about a book critic in in general, because there are different like philosophies behind it. Yes, some people who say, you know, I've heard say, you know, if I'm going to give it a one star vicious review, I'm not going to review it. Mm-hmm. Um, I only want to, you know, review something that is like, you know, worth my that I think is is quality. How do you view some of those considerations? Yeah, um, I don't have a problem with negative reviews, even yeah. with with harshly negative reviews. They just have to be harsh in a way that's compelling to read about, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, you can think of, of book criticism as, as purely derivative, right? In that it just, it's so heavily reliant on the source material, but I don't see it that way at all. It has to stand on its own, right? Yeah. It has to stand as, as its own piece of writing, um, you know, independent of the, of the, of the book that it's engaging with. Right. Um, and so, but, you know, there's, there's nothing worse than, 
you know, a critic saying, here's a book you'd never heard of and it sucks, yeah. right? Like there's, there's yes. a pointlessness to that. So, so you at you least have to have the, yeah. um, the good grace to dislike something in a way that is compelling. Like yeah. an example of that, um, for instance, um, I wrote about a book by Senator yeah. Ben Sass called Them. Yeah. Something, the subtitle was something like Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Yeah. And that's um, included in this collection. Yes. That is, that is in, in the, thank you. I should do the thing where I like pitch the book, you know, like, as I say in the book, right? I always forget that part. The, um, uh, you know, and that is one that actually when it came out, I read thinking I was going to write about it. And as rarely happens, I just had nothing to say. I just thought like this book is not interesting enough to dislike publicly. But then when Sass, you know, years later, he announces he's stepping down from the Senate. He's going to run the University of Florida. And I was hearing his rhetoric um, about that move. And it reminded me of them, you know, right off the bat. And so I went back. It reminded I you of the book. Of the book. Yeah. And I looked at my old notes. Yeah. And I kind of read through it again. And suddenly I had something to say. Suddenly I had, I had a reason to write about it. So... To me, that was instructive, right? That, that sometimes it's not sort of you and the book, but also the moment. You know, there's a moment when a book yeah. is more, is more relevant, is more apropos, and not just in a news peg sense, you know, like old books that had real significance in the past can be significant in new ways later on. I know what you mean about the book. Here's something you never heard of. This is why it sucks. It's like that with, um, profiles of people, especially politicians. If it's someone nobody's ever heard of, it's rarely go unless it's some investigative scandal piece where they right. did something wrong. You know, you're rarely gonna, you know, write a piece about some aspiring Senate candidate or something just to completely torch them. Right. What's the point? What's the you point? Know, there's no, That's yeah. the second or third profile. <laughs> right. Like after they've actually accomplished something. Uh, that's a good point. Let's all right. Let's talk to, about some of the characters and some of the reviews. I'm going to skip around a little bit yeah. because there's so much that's interesting to, to discuss. Let's talk about Biden. Yeah, and uh, who's written you know written quite a few books and um, has had uh, and, and even some of the stuff that's not in here. I presume you've read the more recent uh, um, burst of, of of Biden books about the first couple of years mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've started to i i want to yeah. do a big biden piece where i all right combine, let's oh we got to preview that where <laughs> i combine the i combine the sort of like i yeah. want to write about his memoirs and then i want to write about the biden books all right well we're gonna get we're gonna get a little preview of your thinking on this <laughs> because you, so let's start with um we'll start wherever you want in terms of the biden books that are out there what do you what do you learn from these books that um you haven't been able to get necessarily elsewhere well the um so I've read recently, I read, um, uh, Promise Me Dad, Biden's memoir about basically his yeah. last year or so as vice president, which was also the time that, that Bo was ill and dying, that Bo Biden was, was ill and dying. Yeah. Um, so I recently read that and, um, I'm starting to read, um, his first memoir, Promises to Keep. And I also have read recently, um, Evan Osnos's, um, slim book on, um, but very good book on, on Biden that was published just before the 2020 election. So that's my universe. I've yeah. got the Chris Whipple book and the Franklin Four book and yeah. others that I, um, sort of like on my list. Okay. But, um, what something that really struck me in, in this whole debate about the, you know, Biden's age that we're having now, um, and that is, um, in the book by Evan Osnos at one point in 2020, leading up to that election. So, you know, Trump, Biden is four years younger. Yeah. Um, Osnos asks him flat out, you know, so is it, 
what do you think about when people raise your age as a, as, as a problem? Yeah. Um, and he had an answer that is very um, apropos of this moment. And he said, I think it's completely legitimate um, for people to take that into consideration. I would just ask them to do one thing. Look at me. Yeah. And then decide. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And look at me. Yeah. Decide feels different in 2020 versus in 2024. Yeah. Right. The, the eye test is tougher on Biden today yeah. than it was then. But even then he was saying that that was a completely sort of legitimate way to, to think about, about this one issue that gets worse every day because we all grow older every day. Yeah. Right. Now um, it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's an argument about how, what you can't see. Um, the argument is behind the scenes. Yes. This guy is incredible. Even if he looks like, you know, he's lost a, a step or more. That's in, always in public. That's always, um, that never, always feels like a the, good sign. It always like, feels like the last refuge that like, Oh, in small groups, he's amazing. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, the, um, the, the her report. Unfortunately, that's not how campaigns work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you you, you got to show me that guy. Yeah. The um, big groups. But you know what was interesting to me as well about the and I almost wish that Biden had said something like this the day of that, um, you know, unsuccessful press conference um, uh, in the aftermath of the of the, the special counsel report that had that devastating line that he's a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Um, and you know, there was that episode about, um, did he remember the year that Bo died? Right. Yeah. And when you read Promise Me Dad, his book about yeah. the year that Bo died, his acknowledgments at the end of the book begins with, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but it, um, it begins with a line saying, like, look, this was a very difficult period for me to look back upon. Um, and as a result, some of my memories of this period are foggy. I relied on many people to help me reconstruct, you know, the chronology and and the events of this time, right? And that struck me as such a human explanation. Yeah. Um, you know, no matter your age, if you've had loved ones who you've lost, um, especially over a protracted illness, um, there are things that you block out. Yeah. There are things that you do not, that, that, you know, like... Like I, I lost an older sister and my, my other sister and I, sometimes we, we talk about the period of her illness and we have conflicting memories of things. You know, yeah. we, we yeah. don't, we don't exactly, I have to, re, I have to like remember in my head, you know, okay, that was 2009, right? So it's been 12 years. No, it's been 15 years, you know, like, like yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And, um, and I remember I didn't, I can't remember if I saw the press conference and then read it. Or if I had just read it when I saw the press conference, yeah. but you know, I just thought like, yes, it's it's a completely normal thing to to not remember the de- like was it 2015, 2016? Who cares? You know, like it's right. not right. it's not like that. It's not an important thing. And I think that there was a much better way of addressing it in a way that was far more relatable than saying like than than the like how dare you school of 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 political responses. You know, like how dare you is not you know. Um, yeah. this is, was only has, yeah. has has only been used well once in the you know have you no shame yeah. sir you know yeah. like like yeah. there's no other moment for for how how dare you it doesn't doesn't play well as a as a response and yet Biden in the acknowledgments of promise me dad um, had a very human explanation for you know how the mind 
you know, will block out yeah. uh, traumatic memories. I have two thoughts about this. The first is about the famous line that you mentioned in the in the her report, which you should also review if you haven't already. I have not. <laughs> um, so I'm sure someone has said this, but I, it strikes me as a, a, both a very obvious thing, but also um, or a very obvious observation, but also one that I haven't seen out there. And is there a case to be made that her was actually saying not that Biden is an old man who can't remember anything, but that he was playing one in the course of the investigation, and that's what he would play in front of a jury, and we can't, uh, you know, we don't have a case if he does that. It reminds me of Rupert Murdoch that time he came before Congress and pretended to be like, you know, 120 years old <laughs> and couldn't remember anything. Because the the and I don't have it in front of me, but the the um, the introductory clause to the famous line in the her report is he would appear to a jury, to a jury yes. something something. Yes. Um, so that you know I don't know that I have a question here, but it is. I mean that's 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 um it is it is one way to read that, and and it'll be interesting to see. Brian Lizza Machiavelli. Well, and the, maybe uh, they knew what they were yeah. doing at the same time, so they wanted to fall back on that excuse, but. It is uh, it is one way to read all of the, the those those criticisms and put them in a new light where they're just saying we're not saying he's an old man who can't remember anything. We're, we're just he, we're saying he looks like an old man who can't remember anything. He played one to us, and he'll probably same do the same to the jury. You know, I do want to read um, the the her report. What I read more recently was the Alabama Supreme Court uh, ruling, oh, on, ruling. On, on, on IVF. I read Dobbs and written about Dobbs when it came out. Not to jump around too much, yeah. but I really, the, um, what was great about your reading of Roe, Casey, Casey and Dobbs is you point out, and you can expand on this for me, um, the difference in tone over those yes. decades from Roe to Dobbs. It was, it was remarkable. Um, the, uh, so, you know, when Casey, first of all, when, I mean, when the, when, when the Dobbs case was leaked to Politico, um, or obtained by, yeah. obtained by Politico. Yeah. I wasn't part um, of that. In so the, in the, in the proper, uh, the proper nomenclature, it was obtained by. Um, you know, I, I read it right away, but everyone started writing about it. And so I thought, like, normally I would, I would kind of, you know, maybe write something about this. But I, I, I was thinking, like, what would be interesting for me to say? Like, I'm not, you know, I don't cover the law or the court. Yeah. Um, but as you're reading it, it has so many references to what it thinks of Roe and Casey that I just thought like, well, I should just go read Roe and Casey, right? Yeah. If yeah. I'm going to write like a 3,000 word essay on the evolution in the Supreme Court's, you yeah. know, demeanor across Roe, Casey and Dobbs, I feel pretty safe that no one, that not a lot of people are going to be doing that. Yeah. And so I gave myself some time to like read through them. Um, and it's just, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to like identify this. It's just so obvious, right? Like yeah. in, in, in Roe, you see, um, uh, Rehnquist, who was in a, not, not yet chief justice. Um, you know, even though he was in the minority, um, he was talking about like how much he respected the legal scholarship and historical inquiry of the majority opinion. It commands his respect, right? Yeah. Um, even if he disagreed with, you know, it's, it's, it's legal analysis. Um, uh, so, you know, the brethren all around, right? Everyone, everyone loves each other. Yeah. Then you get to Casey and in Casey, you start seeing like much clearer tensions. Um, you know, Scalia on one side, you know, talking about the, the czarist arrogance of the majority, yeah. um, or the, it wasn't, it, Casey was weird. There wasn't, it was not really a straight up majority. It was like a, like a controlling opinion. Um, and, and you see them like taking pot shots at each other. 
But in Dobbs, oh my God! I mean, yeah. they just they flat out question each other's motives. Yeah. Um. They 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 accuse each other, not even implying, just saying that you know you're letting your political convictions override your your like you know jurisprudence. Yeah. Um. It's brutal. It's like they've lost all. It's like they're like everyone else, right? That's that's well. That's what really comes through in the book. By that point in your book, you're into the. Um, you know the civil, the the politics descending into civil war stuff, and it's like, oh wow, it's even happening in the Supreme Court. Yeah. And we, you know, that's something people say. But when you go back and look at those three opinions and analyze them in the way that you do, it really sort of brings it home. And um, Jumbis Cupid wrote a book about the court recently called uh, Nine Black Robes, and you know she says that there's a certain empowering quality to having a six-person majority versus a five-person majority hmm. when you're still going in the same direction, yeah. but you can go much further. You know how I said there's like often like just one main insight that I draw from each of these books that I remember? Like that's the main yeah. one I remember from Nine Black Robes, that there's something, there's a certain power in yeah. numbers that, that you don't have when you're 5'4". Like if it were 5'4", then John Roberts would be the center of the court, right? right. He'd be the new, the, the new right. Kennedy, right. right? But he's not. You know, he's right. left begging, right? Right. Um, and and when it's six three, you still go in the same direction. You can just go a lot further, and it becomes yeah. a battle then of like, how far do we want to go? Yeah. You know, do we want to go like full Clarence Thomas? Do we want to go Gorsuch and Kavanaugh? You know, like where yeah. do we want to be? Yeah, I want to go back to Biden because I have yeah. a, a sort of um, impolite question about um, Biden and grief. But do you ever think when when you read some of um, Biden's um, memoirs and even some of his speeches. Do you ever think that he crosses the line into using the tragedies that he suffered in his life for performative, overly political uh, reasons? For yeah. instance, um, the White House's reaction was when the Her report came out to really play up how dare you, yeah. you know, uh, on the on the Bo stuff. Um, I mean, the, the only honest answer, um, is that I have no idea, right? If, you know, what is, um, what is real? What is performance? With politicians, I think it's, um, it's, uh, a sort of an instinctive, uh, reaction to assume that everything at all times is, is a performance. Um, you know, uh, and I say this as, as much just as being, for, from being a, a citizen and a yeah. resident of Washington um, for all these years and, and kind of watching, watching him in action is that, um, is it to me, it feels so part of who he is and, but also who he sees himself as being yeah. right. That, um, that I think it's sort of utterly instinctual for him now to kind of gravitate towards yeah. those, not, not in a in, in a performative sense, but as in as in the defining moments in his life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The the loss of his wife and daughter, yeah. you know, early, and the loss of his son late. You know, it's almost like Bo's death um, you know, brought all that back again. That sort of well of grief was replenished. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, but I don't see that as, as being, as being sort of manipulative. I, I sort yeah. of see that as being real. Now, I also, at the same time, it can also be true that, um, that even if it is completely real and, and, and genuine and heartfelt, that people may no longer respond to it in the same way, right? That it, it may not, it may not create that well of sympathy that it, that it once did. 
Um, you know, but that's a matter for, right. for, for, for pollsters, not for book critics. Yeah. Um, but that's how I would, I would think about that. You know, that, that, that Bo's death kind of brought it all back. That's how I think of the, of the Biden story. Um, well, it I feels, like, it, yeah. it feels real to me when I, when I see him do it, but within the trappings of the White House, it's so hard for people not to imagine that, yeah. that, that everything is, is performative. And knowing that maybe cool it a little bit. Yeah. Well, you were, you were a tough, honest critic, so I would trust your judgment on something like that. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Let's talk about Trump. Sure. And I mean, uh, you, you've read them all. The, the numbers. No, the, no, it's impossible <laughs> okay, to read them all. There, I mean, it is. It the, brought the, back the book business, the, though. The Trump <laughs> canon is endless. endless. Like, I think yeah. someone did the math, like, yeah. that for the first year, for the first four years of the Trump presidency versus the equivalent period in Obama, that, like, and Obama was written about a lot, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, that, it was like triple the number of books or something. Like it's just something yeah. absurd, something utterly and they, absurd. They kept doing well. Yeah, I don't know if that's still happening now. But. Michael Wolff. I blame Michael Wolff for all of that. Yeah, Michael Wolff. He was he was the first. Fire and Fury. Yeah, was the first, not the first like Trump book, but the first Trump White House book, and it yeah. kind of set a template for yeah. like how every other. Um, uh, every other journalist, you know, wanted to write about, you know, yeah. the crazy yeah. anecdotes, the like, could you believe he was doing this? The, you know. And um, a lot of it was true, too, in that book. Yes. A lot of what Michael's stuff. A lot of it was even true. There's, there's, a, there's a book critic's backhanded compliment, right? I, I'm sure a lot of this book is even true. Yeah. I just remember in his last one, the last, uh, he he just he reported, as matter of fact, uh, that Trump actually is bald and that the the, the thing is a toupee, which... And he has an anecdote of in there with Trump walking down a staircase in the White House without any hair. And I just remember thinking, like, is that true? Did Michael, and like, nobody else has ever actually stated that as fact. And Wolf, in his Wolfian way, is just like throwing it out there. But anyway, yeah, I, that's um, a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, What's that's, the, yeah. what, what are the, but you had, that's a nice description of the evolution of the books. He did create this appetite. The stories were incredible. Um, and, that um, what were your uh, what are the highlights from from that era? What are the good ones and the bad ones? What, what are the memorable ones? I mean, it's funny the the ones that are often most memorable to me are not necessarily the like the biggest sellers, the ones that did really well. Yeah. But um, I mean, I learned from a lot of them, right? I mean, what like, did you learn about and, Trump that you couldn't get elsewhere? And if um, well, one example of um of a book that I found very useful to understand the Trump era that, um, that I think was not as kind of high profile as, as, as Wolf or as, or some of the others was a book called unmaking the presidency by mm-hmm. Ben Wittes and Sue Hennessy. Um, oh, the law, the, the law folks. Fair. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's, it's, yeah, Susan has, she's now at the justice department. Yes. Yeah. Right. Formerly. Yeah. He's Ben Wittes is still, is at still at, yeah. yeah. But the book was, was Hennessy and Wittes and, um, and what I really appreciated about that book um, was how it, the one, I feel like we all became like, you know, people from like the bar and cheers, like norms, right? Norms was everything, right? Like during yeah. the Trump presidency, yeah. the debate over norms yeah. was the big thing. You know, he's yeah. eviscerating norms. He's undercutting norms. You know, what are, turns out we're about norms, not laws. Yeah. Um, and they kind of walked through all the norms of presidential behavior yeah. that Trump was eviscerating. And they showed you where those, norms came, where those norms came from. And they showed you what the consequences were of those norms being lost. And it was very methodical. It was very rigorous. 
It was not sexy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was useful. Yeah. Like it's, a, it's the kind of book that helps you interpret all the other books. Right. And it's, um, it came out, for instance, I think it may have been the same week, certainly the same month as a book by two of my former colleagues at the post, um, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, when they wrote a very stable genius, a fantastic, like insider book about the Trump white house that, you know, sold more copies than God. Right. Yeah. Um, and yet for me, it was especially useful to read the Rucker Lennig book yeah. through the prism of the Hennessy Wittes book. Right. You know, the, and the, those, those are the kind of books that, um, I mean, they're all helpful. The, the right? journalistic accounts, they, the, the Hennessy Wittes book helps you understand the context you need to know to understand all the transgressive behavior. And why, why it matters, why, right? Why, sort of the, yeah. the, 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 the impact of yeah. it, you know, more yeah. than just like, holy shit, did he really do that? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and so those books do, I mean, they're trying to accomplish different things. I'm not saying one is better than the other, right? Like they yeah. have completely different missions. They're worth reading together, though. You know, but yes, they are yeah. worth reading as a, yeah. like those two that, which came out at the same time. Um, you know, if I, if I, you know, had the wherewithal to think about it back then, I should have written yeah. about them together. Yeah. There's always several layers deeper you can go. And I had that feeling reading uh, Maggie Haberman's book about Trump, yeah. thinking, wow, this is, you, you know, even though this is one of the best reporters on the Trump beat, this is a, a high bar. There's just been so much written about him already. And, you know, she she cleared the bar because she is a great reporter and, and found all sorts of new material and, and put it in a very interesting historical context. What did you uh, What did you get from that book? Oh, what did I get from Confidence Man? Yeah. Like, I liked what... Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll answer in, in two ways. You know, one is that, um, I read that book at the same time that I read The Divider by Susan Glasser and Peter Baker yeah. and Weapons of Mass Delusion by Robert Draper. And so I read them together and it yeah. kind of helped me think about kind of different ways to understand Trump. Yeah. The Haberman book was about, um, you know, kind of getting inside his head. Yeah. You know, um, what, what motivates him, what, what kind of animates him. The, the Baker Glasser book was about basically Trump versus Washington, right? Um, and I, I think the way I read about it is that it's, it's about while, while the Haberman book is more about personality, the Baker Glasser book is more about like paper. It's like Trump fighting the Constitution, Trump fighting the Mueller report, Trump, fight, you know, like yeah. Trump getting, you know, the deputy AG to write the memo that could help him fire Comey, like all yeah. that, you know, it's, it's about kind of the ritual documentation of Washington and how it like ran up against this guy. Yeah. Um, and the, the Draper book was about the personality, the, about the, the people who would come next. Right. The you MAGA know, the, movement. And the, its the, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, you know, the, yeah. the, um, and so those three together helped me understand Trump in a way that, um, reading any one of them alone wouldn't have. Yeah. What I, you know, Specifically, also really appreciated about, about the, the Haberman book, since you asked, um, it's just the, the kind of context of, you know, his life in New York, you know, almost kind of seamlessly. It's not like he had like a huge transformation when he became president, you know, sort of like, yeah. like the, the guy yeah. who he had become right. was already that person that he right. seemed to become in the White House, you know? Right. Um, and that was Maggie's whole thing is like, yeah. hey, I watched this up close in New York. Yeah. None of this really surprises me. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> this and, is what um, you would have predicted if you'd seen him for the last 20 years. But also it's the same thing you would predict if you even read his own books. Like, yeah. like yeah. it's what's so weird. I mean, his own ghost written books, you know, but like if you read The Art of the Deal and Surviving at the Top and The Art of yeah. the Comeback and like, 
like all the all the the Trump memoirs, like you know the it's all about faking it. The rage, the jealousy, the insecurity, the deceit. Yeah. You know, like it's all there. Even these books that purport to kind of make him seem like a good guy. You know, um, and so you know that's something that that struck me. Like I go back and I look at, at this piece I wrote in 2015 when he was first you know doing well in the polls and. Yeah. I, I, I told my editor, I told Marty Baron, I was like, you know what? I want to, I want to read a bunch of the Trump books and see what they say about him. And he was like, that's a great idea, but do it quickly because who knows how long this is going to last. Yeah, right? Right, right. And, um, and at that point, what was the, what was the, this um, is July, constellation this is July, out. this is July, 2015. And those were you, when you say the Trump books, books by him. Yes. By, yeah, yeah. yeah not yeah. even, not the biographies yeah. of which they've been very good ones, you know? Um, but just the books that had his, well, by him or that, that published by him. Right. right yeah. Right. The last line of that review that I wrote in, in July 2015 was that, um, you know, this quote of his where he's like, you know, for me, what's more important is the getting, not the having, you know? So like winning the presidency, fighting, yeah. like, you know, showing yeah. everyone like, see, you know, screw yeah. you, I can do this. As opposed to like, actually like enjoying governance, right? you know, right. like right. for him, right. it's actually winning, yeah. winning that matters. Once he, once he's won, yeah. he's about the next thing. I mean, this was a common uh, line of argument on the right as Trump rose in 2016 that um, Obama it was the was the celebrity president. So what's the big deal? He's yeah. do, Trump is doing the same thing. I mean, obviously we've had celebrity presidents before. If you think about Reagan, mm-hmm. but um, I always you know, and I know a lot of uh, people who are very fond of Obama were outraged by uh, that argument because yeah. there are, we all know the obvious, there are many differences between Obama and Trump. Um, but, you know, there's, there, there's a germ of truth in, in, in that, in that similarity. And you sort of, you, you articulate it well in, in, in this book without obviously doing a kind of false equivalence between the two of them. Yeah. No, I mean, because it's not equivalent, right? I mean, you can identify um, tendencies in people that manifest in radically different ways. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. One but I think, good. frankly, I think like anyone who runs for president, let alone wins the presidency has a healthy self-regard yeah. Yeah. and, um, and a sense of destiny, yeah. you know, about, about like, you know, whether it's, I alone can fix it or, you know, only, um, you know, in America is my story even possible or, you know, I mean, you can go back and find, I'm sure similar things for, you know, like George H.W. Bush had the greatest sense of like noblesse oblige, yes. you know, that like, yeah. that he was born to it, yeah. you know, like it, like high public service at a high level was, was, was a given. Yeah. Right. Um, Some kind so, of mental disorder is almost a prerequisite. <laughs> <laughs> your words, your words, not mine. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Let's talk about Pence because there's a nice uh, there's a nice chapter in here about Pence and, and his book, um, and I want to I want to lump in DeSantis mm-hmm. so we can talk about um, these two presidential candidates 
who you wrote about on the before the before they ran, mm-hmm. and um, but and talk about how those campaigns um, unfolded and ended up for both Pence and DeSantis, mm-hmm. and if there are any early warning signs as you look back on, on their on their books of uh, yeah. you know what this doesn't shock me. <laughs> No, that's a good way of uh, early warning signs. I like that. Especially um, the, uh, the with some of your uh, very sharp critiques and in, 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 in insights in, in, into their the review in in your reviews of their books. Um, I, I, as I was reading it, I thought, you know what? Yeah, that's this was exactly the problem with the Pence campaign. He couldn't <laughs> he couldn't you know straddle this line anymore. Yeah. And the same thing with DeSantis. He couldn't straddle. You know, he wanted to criticize Trump, but he, you know. Yeah. Anyway, they they did it in different ways. Um, but they but in the end, the result was that they weren't actually running against the guy they were running against. Yeah, and it shows know? up right. It and shows up in the in their pre campaign memoirs. Yes, yes, yeah. and so for which is like the worst genre of book. I have to. Yeah. This, <laughs> is, this is the book where people I'm sure are the most like. Oh, I'm so sorry you had to read those. Yes, um, <laughs> that's that's the line I always I always get. Like, oh, you read those books, so we don't have to. Yeah. If if people want to read my columns and reviews and books in lieu of reading all the others, I have no problem. <laughs> with that. I have I have I have I have no concerns. Um, but Pence, for instance, uh, you know, so much of the book is about, I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a straight up, you know, autobiography, you know, he talks about his youth, you know, his early years, um, in, in, in college and, you know, and in Congress and the like, um, when he becomes born again, you know, that's, that's an important part of the book. Um, but obviously a chunk of it centers around January 6th, right? Because his calling card, uh, to an extent was that, look, you know, when the moments were toughest, I, I did the right thing. Um, and when the book came out, he was going through a little Pence boomlet moment where he was getting a lot of credit for, you know, for, for saving the Republic. Yeah. Um, and what, you know, I think that the country does owe a debt to Pence. For what he did that day, I think that debt would be a little greater um, if he hadn't sort of allowed so much and enabled so much that led to that day. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that you, you know, you shouldn't get credit for saving democracy from the brink if you helped carry it there in the first place. Right. And yeah. you look throughout the book, and you know, there are very few moments where you see um, Pence challenging. Trump on any sort of matters of principle. And you see also, even just from the election to January 6th, in that period, there's moments where Pence tells you, you know, tells you the reader that, you know, well, at this stage, you know, I pretty much concluded that the election was over, you know? Right. And just want, I was like screaming, like, did you tell the president, you know, did you call a press conference and tell the public? Like, no, you know, instead he would give these really sort of sneaky speeches to yeah. conservative um, audiences where he would say stuff like, we're not going to stop until like every valid vote is counted and yeah. every legal vote is tossed out. So it sounds like he's suggesting that he agrees with the yeah. Trump line about it being rigged, but he's not really saying anything. You know, of course you want yeah. valid votes to be counted and not valid votes to not be counted. Right. Right? No, everyone and, would agree with that. And, yeah. and so, and so, you know, it was disappointing to me that he's kind of admitting that like, yeah, I knew well ahead of time. I just didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, and one of my absolute favorite moments in, in that, in that book, um, is on January 6th, he, 
um, he's describing the events of January 6th and he, he quotes Trump's, um, video speech to the rioters telling him to go home. Right. And the way he quotes it, um, there's a little ellipsis in the middle of it, you know, where it sounds like what Trump is saying is very benign saying like, you know, you know, I know you're upset, you know, I feel your pain, but you know, we have to have peace. You have to go home. Right. But in the middle of there, there's something that was deleted, right? Yeah. And so, so this is when you go, you went so, to Google. This is when I was like, I just pull up the video and I, and I, and I, and I watched the Trump speech and what was deleted was a sentence or two where he's saying like, this was a landslide election. Everyone knows it. We won, you know? And so like, it was so remarkable to me that like, when he's looking back on a moment when Pence was like hiding for his life, right? When like, yeah. people are calling for his hanging, yeah. that he still like covers for Trump, yeah. right? He's still sort of like massaging the truth to make him look better. Yeah. And to me, getting back to your question, sorry, that was a long, a long no, 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 tangent. This is great. To me, is that, that that shows you kind of like that unwillingness to actually draw the really meaningful, sharp contrast to, to speak fully about what went on is part of why his campaign was doomed, right? Like, yeah. because if you're just hoping to be like Trump light or something, then why would anyone have new Coke when they can have old Coke? You know, yeah. like Trump yeah. is still there, right? Yeah. And with DeSantis, it was similar. DeSantis had many critiques of the response to the pandemic, um, you know, that he could have, he could have drawn a bright line in the book um, distinguishing himself from Trump, but instead he would only attack Trump by proxy, you know, like yeah. he would attack Anthony Fauci, right. As the most evil man in the world, you know, like, yeah. like, you know, we, you know, a dystopian Fauciism of, you know, Fauci villes yeah. that we're living in. And, and, you know, Trump was in charge for the first year of the pandemic, right? Like, you know, yeah. like you could, and you know, there's plenty to say about how he dealt with it. Um, and even when the pandemic is his calling card for, for, um, for DeSantis, um, he was very reluctant to go after Trump. He goes after him in only the most subtle of ways here and there. You know, um, he will say something like, you know, um, I'm not so focused on loyalty. I want competence or, you know, um, some officials just want to hang on forever. You know, we have yeah. to respect the constitution, but he would never actually like January 6th is unmentioned. In DeSantis's memoir. Yeah. Right. Which is kind of remarkable. Um, so in both those cases, I feel that they never really ran against him. Um, and so you're obviously going to lose, yeah. right? Um, and with, um, with DeSantis, really only at the very end of his campaign did he start sort of like publicly calling out Trump, but it's not in the book at all. Yeah. But you're, um, it's a good argument for reading these books and reading them carefully because you identified in your your criticisms of those books the the defects of those two campaigns. I mean, what you identified there became the core issues that they could never overcome. But I do want to talk a little bit about Obama. Um, I've read a lot of these in real time when you published them, but many of them I forgot. And um, I forgot how critical um, – What's his face? His biography of Obama was David Garrow. Got David Garrow, excuse yeah. me. And um, your channeling of, of that criticism was uh, was a, a, was a, a surprising reminder of uh, how tough he was on Obama. Yeah, and you you, you know you seem sympathetic uh, to that. Now, in hindsight, <laughs> I think some you know in in hindsight, do you um, think that review holds up? And just give, give yeah. us your, you know, and maybe um, instead of me characterizing it, 
tell us a little bit about what your take was. Yeah. First of all, I think the context is important. Like so much of the Obama library, the Obama canon um, is so like over the top. Oh, yeah. rapturously oh, praiseworthy. Well, that's what was what that, Garrow's was such a relief. That yes, and so I appreciated I mean, that he was yeah. willing to, you know, do a pretty hard zag right in the in the in the other direction because and you know, it was by so far much, the most comprehensive uh, account. Yes, and I mean yes. more so even than Obama's own memoirs. Yeah, which, as you point out, the first one wasn't he was very was harsh <laughs> on. I mean, the Obama mem. I mean, I think this is a, a tangent, but the I think that. Um, the rule of presidential of, of memoirs by presidents yeah. is that the more removed they are from the author's time in the White House, the better they are, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like Jimmy Carter's, you know, he's written like thirty books or so. Like the the you know one of his worst is his White House memoir, Keeping Faith, right? Because um, it's a defense. The, usually. You know, one that I read for him that I found utterly captivating um, is called. Um, uh, an hour before daylight about growing up on his father's farm in Georgia during the depression. It's just, it's exquisitely written, not, not just like for a politician. It's just beautifully written period. Interesting. Um, you know, and so, but you know, the, the, the closer they are to, 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 to the white house, um, either in anticipation of, or in defense of their, their time there, yeah. the kind of less, less appealing the books are to me. What Garrow said about Obama is that he sort of was very ambitious from a very early age kind of knew he had these, what must have seemed like, you know, insanely ambitious, you know, aspirations for his own life, you know, of what he wanted to accomplish. And that he basically organized his life, including his personal life, his personal relationships around those yeah. goals, you know. And one of the big stories that, that Guerra reveals is about kind of an early girlfriend of Obama's from his years in in Chicago, Um who he sort of felt he couldn't marry because he felt he was, he had gone through an evolution that actually David Marinus writes about beautifully in his biography of Obama, um, about his own identity, right? About, yeah. you know, cause Obama had identified, you know, more like with the international students crowd, you know, he was that kind of guy. Yeah. And, you know, and he sort of made a sort of slow but conscious decision to really identify as, as African American in the United States, particularly during his time in Chicago. Um, yeah. and, and he felt, um, according to Garrow, that, um, to make progress as a political, as a black politician in America, um, uh, he needed to, to, to have a black spouse. Um, and so, um, Sheila Yeager, um, you know, didn't fit. The ex-girlfriend. Um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of detail, probably like way too much detail of, yeah. of that story, but yeah. it was fascinating to me, you know, and, and it, but it, but it wasn't just sort of like the, the girlfriend story, you know, there was a lot in that book that I yeah. really appreciated. He digs into Obama's time at Harvard Law School, for instance, um, you know, so deeply and in a way that is, that is utterly fascinating. Yeah. Um, and even the book, it's called Rising Star. And it's very much a sort of like sarcastic use of the term because he accuses the media of, you know, just labeling him a rising star from day one, yes. you know, from when he became yeah. the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review, from when he delivered the, you know, the, the Kerry keynote speech in 04, um, you know, rising star is always the term associated with, with, with Obama. Yeah. And so for me, that book was revelatory, right? Just because of the sheer volume of material that it was able to amass. Um, and also it was willing 
to be critical of someone who maybe now people are more willing to look back on um, critically, but for so much of his presidency was regarded in these kind of rapturous terms. And yeah, the the line that you reminded me of in the Garrow book was he said he had no core, that he was basically all ambition. ambition Yeah, which I think is hard to imagine for any human, right? I mean, like, like we that, think of Obama as a politician does, yeah. because that's the role he played in our lives, yeah. right? Um, you know, I think I, the way I interpreted that line, you know, he um, like a, a vessel that was hollow at its core, I think is the There you is go. The, is you remember it. That yes, that's right. Um, I, I only remembered it right now that you, that you probably knew before. I, yeah. um, you know, is that, is that that seemed to override so much else. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's what I think um, struck Garrow as, as just you know, a biographer and, 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 and a human. Yeah. Um, but I learned so much. Like, I mean, the other thing that struck me from that book um, about Obama is that, and that has become one of the, sometimes when I read a book, that book is more than a thousand pages long. And sometimes only like two or three things that over the years just stay with you, Yeah. you know? And one thing that stayed with me about Obama that I, I think I first drew from that book is how he, every step along the way, wherever he was, he was dissatisfied, right? So he was looking to, and looking as a state, thing. as the next thing, as a state senator. Oh, you know, it, no, as a as a community organizer right. first. You know, like it's hard to really make lasting change. So he goes into politics, right? As a state senator, you can't get much done. Yeah. So he runs for Congress, right? He yeah. fails, right? Um, then he runs for the Senate. Oh yeah. gosh, in the Senate, like you know, it's slow. This, it's exactly, old exactly. Rules. You know, yeah. and so He's then, really and then, an and then, and then, even the presidency he gets to the presidency, and it's like still. You feel like you're so empowered, but you're really so constrained by the institutions. It's like if everywhere you go, yeah. you have the same complaint, like yeah. maybe it's you, you yeah. know, like yeah. that's yeah. how I, you know, and, and I didn't really reach that, I think, until I read Garo, you know, to, to have that sense of this kind of chronic dissatisfaction that Obama yeah, had with, I think, with, uh, with, with, with kind of every position he was ever in. It reminds me of a of previous guest on this show who talked about the hedonic treadmill uh, when <laughs> you never reach... Uh, I love that. Ha- happiness, because you're always on to the, the next thing that you think is going to really fulfill you. And, you know, you have to find meaning in other, in, in other ways. But that's a great synopsis of his, of his biography. What books are you excited about? Political books, Washington books, are you excited about uh, in 2024? What, what should listeners uh, have on their yeah, eye? Um, so uh, Anthony Fauci has a memoir coming. And wow, a lot of... I'm a lot of payback. He's he's got very long. He's got a long list of people to get get back at. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in that. You know, like yeah. someone at the end of the Trump presidency, someone said to me, like, "Are there any sort of Trump era memoirs that you really want to read?" Yeah, and I said the three that I would want to read um, are one from Robert Mueller, uh, one from Kirsten Nielsen, who had such a I mean, like she was at the center of so many controversial things yeah. at at DHS, and so I would I would love to see that from her point of view. Well, and her, um, Nielsen's would be very apropos for this campaign, given oh, yeah. how that issue is dominating everything. Um, so that, like, you know, I, I don't know if she's if she's working. I think yeah. I think in Mike Shear and Julie Davis's book about uh, called Border Wars about about immigration during the Trump era, immigration policy during the Trump era. I think there's a moment when she jokes. I may be, I may be citing the wrong book, but they all bore together after a while. Yeah. Uh, but at one point, she jokes that um, that. If she wrote a memoir, it would be something like um, 
just go ahead and do it, honey. You know, like that was the title. Because that's what, that's, that's what Trump would always this. say to her, right? I do remember. Something yes, like that. It was something that was like a that. famous line from one of those books. Yeah, that he would just say to her, oh, just, just, just do it, honey. Just do it. You know, like just close the border. Just, just do whatever. You know, um, so, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe she would, maybe she would call it that. I, I doubt it. But, um, but so I'm excited to read, to read Fauci. Um, I am not excited to read. <laughs> I can't wait for this. What is it? Oh, I'm not excited to read, to read, um, well, the, actually my colleague Ezra Klein on his, uh, in his New York Times podcast recently said this, um, that there is going to be, you know, the inevitable glut of, um, Biden, Trump 2024 campaign books coming out in 2025. Yeah. I don't know who might be writing those. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but, um, but, and that what he fears is that what will happen, say that Biden loses, that what will happen is that all those books will have all the text threads and all the emails and all the WhatsApp messages of people saying to each other, you know, now in 2024, like, oh my God, yeah. he's going to lose. We have to change horses, but we can't. Yeah. What do we do? You know, and that, and that all that, all that drama will appear in books later on, yeah. you know, and that's what happens. Stayed silent. That is absolutely what happens. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's coming, you know, and of course the stories will be just as compelling, you know, however, however the election turns out. Um, but there's a certain kind of rhythm and predictability to the, if you think the campaign books by the presidents are kind of repetitive and not that exciting, the like telling the stories of the campaign afterwards, it's very hard to distinguish yourself, you know, enormously in that field because a, it's so it's competitive. Very competitive. It's very There's competitive. so many people, so yeah. many talented journalists writing books about that. Um, and they're all like talking to a lot of the same people. Yeah. Well, and it's, and, and it's being, and it's unfolding in real time. And, you know, it's, you know, between the Politico and the, and, and the national newspapers and CNN, there are a lot of great political reporters pulling that stuff out in real time mm -hmm. during the campaign. Um, Carlos, the final question, and you're, you're the guinea pig for a new thing I want to do at the end of the show each week in the spirit of uh, trying to broaden the conversation and, and uh, have a conversation uh, in a, in a podcasty way from guest to guest. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask um, each week's guest to ask a question for the next week's guests without knowing who that guest is. I like that very much. And so I went back to Nancy Mace uh, and, and asked her for a question because I, I didn't do it in real time. And um, Mace, you'll, you'll see this question. Maybe in her mind she was thinking, you know, a politician uh, might, might be the next <laughs> Chances guest. are. It's yeah. not like your tax reform plan or anything, but <laughs> she made it general enough that you, you could still take this on. And then um, if you can, uh, you, you can uh, throw out a question for next week's guests who, you, who sure. neither of us know who that will be. So Nancy asks you, Carlos, if you can take on one issue single-handedly right now, what would it be and how? One issue? One like, issue. Like, like an intractable policy debate? <laughs> well, I'm, gonna say, I'm, I'm basically going to say you can interpret this however the hell you want. <laughs> there, there are no rules here. But if you can take on one issue single-handedly right now, what would it be and how? And, you know, again, no rules. If I could single-handedly take on one issue for a day, like what would I solve? So I have all these boring ones going yeah. through my head, like oh, the you know the crisis at the border or the war what? in there's Ukraine. No, there's no shame in the, that. Or the no, no, no. But I'm just thinking, like I'm like I'm cycling through issues because issues is one of the most boring words in Washington. Right? That's true. Issue. That's true. Um, it's not like a reality. Yeah. It's an issue. 
Right. right. Um, Crime, so immigration. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to be critical of Nancy Mace's question. Well, this is your job to be critical <laughs> of, politi of what politicians write. So you're, you're, you're playing to your character here. Um, what would I, you know what? I'll just, I'll, I'll play even more to type. Um, <laughs> if I could be dictatorial for a day, I would, um, I would get rid of ghostwriters. That's that, see that's that's, that's on brand. That's it. It's on brand. It's on brand. Although I feel like ghostwriters like, serve all a ghostful function. And we're talking about speechwriters. Yes. We're talking about book ghostwriters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, not yeah. just not just like yeah. authors of like yeah. campaign bios. Oh, you're putting out like um, you're putting out a whole industry. Half of, half of this town is out of work in this yes. in this, in this uh, dictatorial republic of mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. In I, the I People's Republic some, of, of some loyal listeners yeah. I know are, are, are turning the knob right now. Ghostwriters, speechwriters. Um, yeah. And in a, in a more narrow way, I would get rid of the State of the Union and just have it back to being a written <laughs> document that, that they sent. Yeah. Yeah. I think Biden might be uh, yeah. prefer, oh my prefer God. that this year. I don't know. Yeah. Um, thank you. That was excellent. And you, do you have something off, off your cuff for you know, the next guest? Not who this is. Um, yes, I do. Yeah. I do. I just, I just thought of this now. A, um, I recently was speaking to a sort of high-level person in the publishing world who told me that if he weren't doing that job, um, he would be a marine biologist. And not like in a Costanza sense. You know? <laughs> I've always wanted to pretend to be a marine biologist, you know? Yeah, like, George um, wanted to be an architect, I believe. Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, that's right. George wanted to be an architect. Jerry made him be a marine biologist. Um, the, uh, um, the sea was angry that day, my friend. The, um, the, you know, and that like he'd actually had a real love for this field as a young man. And if he weren't doing this other thing, like that's what he would be doing. And I was so struck by it. And, um, oh, it's so, that's a and, sad in a way. It's very poignant. It is because I kind of feel like he still wishes he had done it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I guess I would ask whoever is coming next, if you weren't doing this Washington thing that you're doing. Yeah. What would you do? This is great. That is a great question. I love it. Thank you for playing along with that and being our <laughs> guinea pig for that. And both your answer and your new question were great. Um, Happy to do it. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for plugging the book much, much more effectively than I did. <laughs> it's a great book. Uh, the Washington Book by Carlos Lozada. Thanks, man. Thanks. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me directly at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.